Hey book friends, this is Corey. Thanks for listening along as we have a book club of two over a cup of tea. Our goal is to explore beloved genres as well as push ourselves out of our comfort zone and explore genres we might typically overlook or avoid. In each episode, we discuss a randomly selected genre. We will be sharing our reading experience and a brief review of the books we recommended to each other from the previous episode. Also a heads up, so that we can have a rich and in-depth conversation, there may be spoilers about the books we are discussing. All right, let's get started. This is episode six. Today, we're talking about the genre of creative nonfiction and literary journalism. What's going on with you this week, Kiri? Uh, So I decided to start a weekly yoga challenge and do 30 days straight of yoga, and it's kind of kicking my booty, but Mm -hmm. it's uh, pretty good. And other than that, reading a lot of books. (laughs) How about for you? Uh, Still re-entering from vacation. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in Oregon for about two and a half weeks, and it was so much fun. I visited all sorts of bookstores, including the mecca of bookstores, Powell's Bookstore. I got this super cute mug that has a cat on it and books. I was like everything in one mug that I could ever (laughs) want. Um, But also went into some really cute ones in Astoria on the coast and Newport Beach. Actually, excuse me, Nye Beach. Ashland, just everywhere. Bookstores everywhere. It was so much fun. I picked up a few things, but I tried to restrain myself. Nice. Two and a half weeks seems like a long time for a vacation. It was a bit long. I was ready to come home. I had so much fun and saw so many cool things. But yes, I was ready to be back into my routine. How was was your vacation? It was good. We went up to Salt Lake City, Yellowstone, Grand Tetons, back to Yellowstone, back to Salt Lake City. It was a 3,000 mile road trip in nine days. It was a lot of driving. A lot of driving. (laughs) This country is huge. It is. But boy, the Grand Tetons. I love Jackson. It's such a cute little area. The Grand Tetons were like going to church. I was just like so blown Mm -hmm. away by the spectacularness Mm -hmm. of it all. It was it was lovely. Yeah, actually, two of the books that I picked up were odes to national parks. Nice. Uh, Yeah, I'll have to show them to you later. Yeah. So cool. Hey, Kira, you want to tell us what we're drinking today? (laughs) (laughs) Both Corey and I have had a very rough week and we're both drinking some coffee. (laughs) So There is a time for tea, and we'll have tea in the next episode, I'm sure. But this week, we're switching it up and getting highly caffeinated to start this Sunday outright. So So if we seem a little (laughs) extra hyper and wackadoodle, you know it's probably from the caffeine. So, Okay, Um, so this our genre for this week, as I said, is creative nonfiction and literary journalism. So we will start by sharing a little bit about what that is. I think, Kira, you did the research this week? I did, okay. yeah. So in some ways, creative nonfiction is like jazz. It's a rich mix of flavors, ideas, and techniques, some of which are newly invented and others as old as writing itself. It can be an essay form, a journal article, a research paper, a memoir, which is one of the books that we picked this time. Or a poem. So it can be personal or not. It can be it can be anything in all of these things. The words creative and nonfiction describe the form. Creative refers to the use of the literary craft, the techniques that fiction writers, playwrights, and poets tend to use. And the ultimate goal is to make nonfiction stories read like fiction so that readers are enthralled by facts as they are by fantasy. Some of the bestsellers include Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, which is one of the books we'll be talking about today, and The Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls. And Zetune by Dave Eggers, which is really, really good as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And then literary journalism is the creative nonfiction form that comes closest to newspaper and magazine writing. It's fact-driven and it requires research and often interviews, which was, I felt, very relevant in the two books that we picked today. And literary journalism is sometimes called immersion journalism because it requires a closer, more active relationship to the subject and to the people the literary journalist is exploring. Most of what gets referred to as literary journalism is some combination of history and travel writing. History because it undertakes to determine what happened in the past. Travel writing because it depends upon firsthand observation in addition to documented evidence. Oh, that so, makes sense, but I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, okay. so some of those examples would be uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, Into the Wild by John Krakauer, Blood Work, A Tale of Medicine and Murder and the Scientific Revolution by Holly Tucker, which is Ooh. an amazing book I'm and intrigued. totally crazy. Okay, um, got to add that to my really totally. long list. Totally. <laughs> uh, Michael Pollan does a lot of literary journalism, so The Botany of Desire is one of his that I've marked, and The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Oh, <laughs> yes. For Book Club, we read another book about Olive, by Oliver Sacks, which I don't remember liking. Yeah, I don't. I didn't like it either. What it was it? It was the... Uh, a psychology book um, where they did the experiments oh. on mentally ill patients. That's right. I don't remember what it's called, but yeah. very depressing. Very depressing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, I think the books that we picked today represent this genre very well. Definitely. Um, do we want to start with mine? Sure. Okay. So my pick this week was Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson. Leslie got the idea for her book by working as a medical actor. Uh, she was paid to act out symptoms for medical students to diagnose. But her main profession in life is to be a writer. So this got her to start thinking about what does empathy mean and how does that play out in our lives? And her big questions were, how should we care about one another and how can we feel another person's pain? I thought this was a really intriguing premise. So that's why I picked the book up at the bookstore. And then because it was on my shelf and I thought it'd be a good fit for this particular genre, I decided to get it off my shelf. Um, I'm also highly empathetic, and that's one of those things that sometimes is a really good thing and sometimes is a struggle in my life, and so I was curious to see what she had to say about it. Overall, I found the book a bit uneven. Um, I'm not sure I always saw the direct connection to empathy. I think she sometimes leaned more into the creative side of just wanting to write an essay that might have a connection to empathy and let us as readers try and draw our own conclusions. So perhaps I was just a little lazy and not wanting to connect the dots. It kind of reminded me of short stories in a way. Yes. Because each chapter was about a different person and a different experience. Mm -hmm. And we all know how I feel about short stories. So it was kind of frustrating, but it did have that short story flavor. But maybe that's just the essay part of it yeah yeah I think so um and I think maybe if she'd had more like if she'd at the end of each section directly addressed the issue of empathy and what she found out of it I think that was what was missing for me is she didn't always talk about how it answered her questions mm -hmm. and so that was problematic to me I found the essays themselves very interesting overall she's a really good writer um she had some really kind of creative ways she structured each essay which again, in some ways made it feel a little uneven because the structure wasn't similar, but it was also cool because she would have different headings or she would kind of thematically write it based on the topic. Um, it's kind of hard to explain if you're not reading it, but I think that was certainly one thing I found interesting. But there were definitely a couple of standout essays. The first one about being a medical actor, with mm -hmm. the introductory one I thought was really good yeah. and interesting. Um, I liked The Immortal Horizon. That was about the crazy race in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I thought that was just interesting. But again, that's one where I was like, where's the empathy piece in this? Right. It's a great story, but 
I mean, was she just trying to understand why people would do races like that? I mean, is that the whole point to that whole story? It was very inconclusive. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, really, I thought the best one was the hardest one to read, and that was The Lost Boys. And that was the one about the three boys in Arkansas that were accused of murdering the three other boys and went to jail Mm -hmm. um, for about 20 years. And because of a three-part documentary that was filmed about the boys, um, they actually were released in their late 20s for reasons that I won't go into. But I think that was where she really started talking about empathy and how it played into this whole, literally a witch hunt of these boys because people had to have um, an explanation and understanding of how something so horrible could happen to these kids. And these kids were misfits. And so it seemed like it made sense to blame them and just kind of that whole bouncing back and forth. Yeah, it was just pretty crazy. And I I had an interesting quote I was going to read, but I'll let Kiri kind of weigh in while I look that up. So just to go back to what Corey was saying, it kind of reminded me of the Green Mile. Oh, yeah. You know how the, the... I don't remember his name, but the giant black man, Mm -hmm, you know, is mm -hmm. basically punished because they think that he raped or killed the little girl, but he was, he didn't. And the Lost Boys section kind of reminded me of that. So I had a couple of random thoughts while I was reading this book that I'll just dive into really quickly. And that was, you know, man, the first couple pages are really cool. The medical, her acting out symptoms to medical students was really fascinating. Uh, I thought that the other essays involving the author's life were pretty boring, except for the whole maggot coming out of the ankle. Do you remember that? that? Oh, my God. I was sitting there reading it being like, what the hell is happening right now? (laughs) I don't remember the name of that Mm -hmm. story, but I just remember thinking I would be hysterical and I would constantly think that anytime I had an open wound, a maggot would crawl out. It's disgusting. (laughs) So disgusting. It was pretty creepy. But I also didn't hate this book, but I didn't really enjoy it. I think it's because she jumped around a lot with the different stories and essays and experiences, and it was hard to kind of relate them all back to empathy, especially since I think some of the stories were lacking in any sort of empathy discussion, Mm -hmm. while others were very heavy on the empathy, like when she went to that conference And it was a conference for people with um, that really bizarre disease. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. disease that Western doctors think that is not really a disease. And she really dove into the empathy Mm -hmm. in -hmm. that. But then the other ones were kind of hit or miss. So it was an uneven, as you said, story or essays explaining Mm -hmm. empathy. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, one of the quotes that stood out to me, and again, this is from the, the Lost Boys one. She writes... We like who we become in response to injustice. It makes it easy to choose a side. Our capacity to care, to get angry, is called forth like some muscle we weren't entirely aware we had. Or I guess I should say I. Why project the shame of this rubbernecking onto everyone? I don't want to suggest that I wasn't genuinely troubled, hurt, aching for these boys. I thought of them for the next 10 years and wrote Jason several letters in prison, never returned. But I admit that some part of me enjoyed these films. I didn't enjoy what was happening, but I enjoyed who I was while I was watching. It offered evidence of my own inclination towards empathy. Mm, That's a good one. And she has a lot of really great little nuggets in that particular one. And I think that's because when we are, you know, making ethical decisions about people's lives, what's right and wrong. That is really where empathy comes into play a lot, I think. So I think that's why that was probably one of the more powerful ones for me Mm -hmm. in the whole series. And I have a few quotes that I really liked. And the first one, I identified with it a lot because I tend to suffer from some pretty bad anxiety where I can have a 
pain in my tooth and I automatically think I'm dying of a brain tumor. So my mind definitely goes from normal to a hot mess in 0.5 seconds. Um, So this quote is, instead of identifying with my panic, he was helping me understand that even this would be okay. His calmness didn't make me feel abandoned. It made me feel secure. It offered assurance rather than empathy, or maybe assurance was evidence of empathy, insofar as he understood that assurance, not identification, was what I needed most. Empathy is a kind of care, but it's not the only kind of care, and it's not always enough. I needed to look at him and see the opposite of my fear, not its echo. Mm. And I think that's my partner is very much like that. He doesn't experience a lot of anxiety. And so I have started to tell him like, oh, I'm feeling really anxious and this is why. And sometimes it's easier for him to be reassuring and not making me feel like I'm going crazy. And then other times I think I just my anxiety is so hard. I can't even hear any of the logic in what he's trying to tell me of how my Mm -hmm. anxiety is being completely wackadoodle right now. So he's lacking kind of in that empathy. Yeah, yeah. And then I just have I'm going to share another quote, and it is empathy means realizing no trauma has discrete edges. Trauma bleeds out of wounds and across boundaries. Sadness becomes seizure. Empathy demands another kind of porousness in response. My Stephanie script is 12 pages long, I think mainly about what it doesn't say. And so this is talking about her being a medical actor. And this Mm. girl is, you know, she has the script of Stephanie and it can tell you all the things of what the person is experiencing. But I think those silences of what it's not actually saying is a huge part of being able to have empathy because I can tell you I'm fine, but that might not actually be true. And realizing like, oh... Mm-hmm. What else isn't she saying, you know, is mm-hmm. kind of a, a nice way of realizing that empathy comes in different shapes and sizes and what is said and not said. I think you bring up a good point there. And I didn't even think about this when I was reading it, but having unfortunately had to navigate more of the medical system than I would have anticipated in my life, I'm very aware of what kind of interactions I have with the different people I have. And I would say that there are doctors that I have connected with um, on a much easier basis and that I found it easier to talk about my fears and concerns and ask questions without feeling stupid and open up to and others that I feel really uncomfortable doing Mm -hmm. that. And so, you know, we joke about doctors bedside manners and they can be the most brilliant person in the world and they don't need to be, say, a psychologist. But at the same time, they they have to have some be able to intuit some sort of of how what's going on with people below the surface and realize that sometimes the mental piece is connected to the physical piece Mm -hmm. and, and tend to that as well, or at least acknowledge it. And Mm -hmm. I have sometimes struggled with some doctors who I think have provided me really good physical care, but I haven't felt very comfortable with them and haven't built a level of trust. I mean, if you're letting someone cut you open or give you highly toxic drugs, you want to be able to trust them and ask them questions. And I don't know that we always, unfortunately, have that in all of our doctors out there. Yeah, I would say I had surgery back in February, and I met the anesthesiologist, and he was so friendly, and he talked with me and was very helpful. And I told him I suffered from anxiety. He's like, well, we'll put the crazy, you know, knock you out drug. Yeah, (laughs) we'll put that on your chart in case you need it, but try not to need it. Like, work... Mm -hmm do breathing practice, try and figure out if you can make it so you don't need it. And then my surgeon was, you know, so kind and she held my hand while I fell asleep. And it was just, I've never seen her again since my checkup appointment, but Mm -hmm. it was just one of those experiences of like, I knew that she was on the same level as me and she was going to do her best. And I felt completely safe in her arms. 
and I haven't had many surgeries, so I don't know what the opposite of that would feel like, but I mm-hmm. imagine my mental state would probably be a lot different. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, um, pick, it's worth picking up. I don't know that, at least for me, that she fully accomplished the goal of the book. It's not super long. And it's one of those ones, again, since it's essays, you could kick around with it. You could, if one doesn't resonate with you or you find yourself being really bored, skip it and move on to the next one. They're not connected. Um, But there is some, definitely some interesting things in there. And I will share one last quote that I found. The last one was about women and and suffering and feeling pain. And uh, again, it was probably one of the more interesting ones. And I think it dug a little more into the empathy piece. But she says, uh, Susan Sontag has described the heyday of a nihilistic and sentimental 19th century logic that found appeal in female suffering. Sadness made one interesting. It was a mark of refinement of sensibility to be sad. That is, to be powerless. This appeal mapped largely onto illness. Sadness and tuberculosis became synonymous, she writes, and both were coveted. Sadness was interesting, and sick was its handmaiden, providing not only cause, but also symptoms and metaphors. A racking cough, a wane pallor, an emaciated body. The melancholy creature was a superior one, sensitive, creative, a being apart. And, I, you know, again, this talks a lot about uh, one of the interesting facts she brings up with that is that if uh, both men and women talk about having ex- having pain to a doctor, that the man is more likely to get a prescription for painkillers, while the woman is more likely to get some sort of sedative or anti-anxiety medicine, even today. And I was kind of like, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> so anyways, again, yeah, I think it's it's worth poking at. Um, I don't regret reading it. No, I don't either. So, so we're going to move on to Curious Pick. So the book I picked is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. And this is, I think, becoming a or is already a movie or a TV show or something featuring Oprah. But I haven't seen that. I just read the book. So a quick description is her name was Henrietta Lacks, but science knows her as Gila. She was a poor black tobacco farmer whose cells, taken without her knowledge in 1951, became one of the most important tools in medicine, vital for developing the polio vaccine, cloning, gene mapping, and more. Henrietta's cells have been bought and sold by the billions, yet she remains virtually unknown and her family can't afford health insurance. So that basically is what this whole journey is about. Rebecca does a pretty good job of diving into who Henrietta Lacks was. And a couple of my quick random thoughts while reading was, who would have thought I would actually understand cellular science? Yes. (laughs) That was one of my comments as well, that she really broke down some complicated scientific things into very simple, but not dumbing it down, just making it understandable. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. pretty awesome. Poor, poor Henrietta. How awful. Her story is awful. It is awful. I feel so bad. I cannot believe that there are trillions and trillions of her cells out there. That's crazy. It's everywhere. It's probably at Flagstaff Medical Center. I thought about that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Man, I miss science. So I I, I left my science job and this book definitely made me miss being part of the science world. So and then at some point in the book, I thought it it just became too much. There was too much detail and I was kind of over it and I just wanted the book to wrap up. So those were my random thoughts. But Mm -hmm. I really this book was quite captivating. Like, I could not put it down. It was horrifying. It was surprising. It was happy. It was sad, especially 
I mean, it just made me feel all the feels, which is what I really like <laughs> in a book. Um, I like the scientific part of it, but there came a point about halfway through where I just felt like there was too much information that could have been left out and it didn't really help the story. Um, diving into just all of the different things that her cells helped create, I think mm-hmm. was just a little too much. And I mm-hmm. wanted more of the personal story between her and her daughter because mm-hmm. that was what was starting to become really interesting. Okay. Um, and I think that the car ride, there's a car ride between Rebecca and Deborah was hilarious. And I was just <laughs> laughing because Deborah seems like a very kind of bipolar type of woman of she will love you and love you fiercely one second. And then she thinks you're out to get her. And maybe that's just the way it mm-hmm. is where they're from and being black and being, you know, having their mom be taken advantage of essentially. And then scientists taking advantage of her children to see if they mm-hmm. have the same sort of cells. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah, I definitely, I commented on one of those one, I think her name was Susan, one of the doctors. Yeah. That she didn't realize until many years later when Rebecca interviewed her, the damage that she and her colleagues had caused the family by taking samples from them and never communicating with them and how they'd been living in fear, thinking they might have cancer. And, you know, and she was kind of like, Oh wow. Maybe I should have handled that differently. Totally, (laughs) Yeah. But I think overall it was a really delicious read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, kind of just jumping off a couple of things. I would say, first of all, this, book to me is a perfect example of narrative nonfiction and the kind of narrative nonfiction that I like mm-hmm. to read goes back to your description earlier of something that almost reads like um, a fantasy or fiction. And sometimes people are like, well, you know, you shouldn't, you know, if it's nonfiction and you should just take it for what it is and it shouldn't have to be like that. But I'm like, it has, I have to relate to it. I, yeah. I need to know what's going on and I need to care about it. Yep. So I think she did a really good job of that. You know, she tells a story and it has facts and history woven into it. Mm-hmm. And I thought she did a really good job of both telling the family's story, but also interviewing so many other players mm-hmm. in there and not and making sure it was a really comprehensive and broad view of what was happening, which I think, as you alluded to, made it long and thick. But I think it was really well-rounded. So that's yeah. kind of the trade-off, I yeah. think. I like that she kept their voices. Mm-hmm. And, I, and she even included this quote in her introduction. She says, if you pretty up how people spoke and changed the things they said, that's dishonest. It's taking away their lives, their experience, and their selves. Mm. And that was said by one of the people she interviewed. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, we're talking about people from the South and from, um, you know, who have less education. So, you know, a lot of the the grammar is, um, you know, against verbatim, and it may not always be proper English, if you will, but it definitely... Also, I thought, again, added depth and color to the story mm-hmm. and made it seem more real. Um, I like that she inserted herself into the story. I felt yeah. like it was kind of a journey of self-discovery for her as well. Totally. I think it was a nice play of her becoming a better writer and perhaps even having more empathy. Mm. See? Oh. Connection! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. but And and just learning how to connect to a family that was so different from her. You yeah. got this white lady who's connecting with this very distrustful group of, you know, this African-American family who have been screwed over time and time again. So the fact that she was able to persistently and kindly develop relationships and build that foundation, I think says a lot about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. So, you know, I would say from a personal standpoint, it was a hard read at times. And ironically, I think some of the things where you're like, 
I didn't really care about all the things that her cells refused to discover. For me, that was meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after so after my diagnosis with cancer, I had to take a crash course in what the hell is cancer? What's happening in my body? What are these drugs doing? And, um, you know, it's a complex subject and mm-hmm. it's very overwhelming, especially when you are emotionally connected to it. And, you know, I don't think about it a lot now because it's in the past, but this definitely kind of supplemented what I remembered reading about and uh, kind of augmented it a little bit. And I think, you know, as I finished the book, and I was writing my notes. I thought, gosh, I owe Henrietta Lacks my life. Mm, yeah. I mean, I do. I her cells certainly helped me be successfully treated. Right. I, I you know, I I do. I owe her my life. And so I think that that was really a good thing for me. Um, I kind of got sucked in, though, with that in mind, with the ethics kind of debate. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that I kind of commented on and the questions I wrote is uh, um, the ethics debate over tissue research. So is it ex- acceptable for the greater good? It certainly benefited me. Yeah, I right? had a hard time <laughs> with uh, the cell thing oh. and trying to figure out if I was in that position and they took my fallopian tubes, for mm-hmm. example, and used them for mm-hmm. figuring out how to construct 3D fallopian tubes for women who don't have fallopian tubes that want them, I was just like, I would want to know. Mm-hmm. Well, so that brings me to my next question. <laughs> so what did I sign that I didn't fully read or comprehend? Oh. At the time, I was freaked out and I just wanted to be fixed. <laughs> so I was like, "Yes, I will sign that." And yep, okay, right there. Where else am I? Put, where's the highlighter? Yeah, it, I. I mean, I skimmed things and I tried to process it, but I. I was like, "Huh? I wonder what happened with my tissue." Right. Because I'm pretty sure I signed something that I'm guessing probably said that the tissue was now theirs, and unless I said otherwise. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, every time I get those damn waivers that you have to sign to do anything, I'm always shocked because I don't really read them. I just, <laughs> here's my initials. I'm signing this. I know the surgery, but like I did not read the forms that I mm-hmm. signed for my mm-hmm. surgery. And it could easily be that my fallopian tubes are being held in a jar somewhere for future use. Right. Oh, no. (laughs) But again, from an empathetic standpoint, you know, again, my thought was I'm college educated and I know about things like informed consent. And yet I had so much fear that that overrode overrode (laughs) any irrational, irrational thought that I might have had about, wait, what am I what's going to happen with this stuff? I was just like, just fix me. Just fix me. You know, and I think that's human nature. Yeah. Um, and they probably even discussed it with me. I mean, I just don't even remember at this point because I've tried to block it all out. I think, you know, the other question I tussled with on the flip side of that is, is should the Lax family benefit from the profit earned from for-profit agencies? And again, I, you know, I made a note and I can't remember exactly what it is, but something about $3,000 for the BRCA1 gene, which I have. Um, so that's part of why I have cancer. And I want to say that the company that owns the patent, it, they charge $3,000, um, I think, for testing or for research or something like that. And apparently the company is super, super possessive of it to the point that the ACLU sued Marriott because they defend their patent. And, not, and that made me a little angry because I'm like, OK, I get it. You're a company. You know, we, we live in a capitalistic economy. But 
This is about saving lives. Yeah. This is about people knowing what's wrong with them and how to fix it. And you're suing people who don't pay you their money. And I just, it, it really made me angry. I think this is kind of like a theme right now that's happening in this country about pharmaceuticals, especially charging so much money for medicine that doesn't cost them that much to make, but mm -hmm. they're inhibiting people to get the medicine that they need to be healthy and maintain their quality of life. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the most frustrating things. And I'm lucky enough to have a job that has really good health benefits that Amen. I only pay, you know, $10 for a round of antibiotics if I get an infection of some sort. But, you know, I grew up in poverty. I lived in government housing. We were on food stamps and we had shitty government insurance where they basically didn't care. Like, oh, you have a cavity, even though we should probably put a crown on your tooth. We're going to fill it up with entire mercury fillings so that in 10 years, when you bite into a piece of toast, your tooth will break. True story. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they don't take care of people. And mm. it's nice to have a cheaper version of healthcare, but if the healthcare is not to the standard of what we would get now as employed people with good health insurance, then what the hell is the point? You're doing more harm than you are good. And it's one of those subjects that I'm having a very hard time. I can't read the news about it because I just get so irritated because I've been on the side of poor, mm -hmm. not being able to afford it and now being able to afford it and realizing mm -hmm. how much people take it for granted that they can afford to go to the doctor at any time and only pay $10. Absolutely. Well, and I love my job and we have the same insurance and Lord knows, I can't even tell you how many, when I was counting my blessings <laughs> every day, I'd be like, thank God for good insurance. Yeah. Um, and, but it also kind of makes, and I say this with the preface that I do love my job, but it, in some ways, when I think about it, it makes me feel a little trapped. Yeah. Um, especially with the state of health insurance today, as we kind of start sliding into a little bit of a political commentary. <laughs> but, but again, keeping it real, you know, I, I worry about the, all this discussion about pre-existing conditions. Yeah. I am one huge walking pre-existing condition. Right. So for me, I'm like, I have to be very careful about, my professional choices because I need to think about the insurance that I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. I can't right now. I wouldn't trust getting insurance on the marketplace right. because it's constantly changing and it probably would cost me so much money. And, you know, so I, I don't want to say I feel trapped, but I feel obligated to think very hard about, you know, making any transitions because of things like that. Yeah. It's definitely, I've had many conversations with people recently that are their spouse is in a situation where it's like they wouldn't be able to afford this treatment if they weren't mm -hmm. working at the university and had the university's health care and how trap trapping that is of like you want to retire. But at the same time, you're like, but my husband or my wife needs this life saving treatment and I'm not going to be able to get that if I leave this job. So mm -hmm. it's definitely a ethical and empathetic <laughs> uh we just have to think a little bit harder about what we need to do for the people of this world. Agreed. Well, um, I can wrap up with a few of the impressions I noted about this, just general commentary stuff. So again, I, I there was a quote, conscientious objectors in the DNA draft. Um, so people out there that are actually saying, no, you can't use my tissue. <laughs> um, another one, the doctors said, and again, this is one of those ones where I was like, it, it gave me a little pause and it says, consent feels nice, but consent diminishes the value of tissue. And I was like, oh, okay. It just uh, makes me feel dirty. Yeah. But again, I mean, I think for me, it goes back to, I, I certainly want people to be informed mm -hmm. and I want people to feel like they have a right from it. But 
having benefited greatly from all of this, it just puts me in a really weird place. Yeah. But you know what? So I'm going to go on another tangent. Yeah, go for really it. Quick. No, no. That's but so this about. kind of reminds me, it has like, a, like if we were to not be talking about medical discussions, but we were to be talking about rape, for example, mm. like consent feels nice, but consent diminishes the value of the person, Ooh, you ouch. know, like flipping it that okay. way kind okay. of just mm-hmm. was like, that's why I said it makes me feel dirty mm. because instantly I was like, consent for medical consent Mm -hmm. for rape i mean having sex with somebody like Mm -hmm. it's kind of dirty okay and it doesn't make me feel very happy okay no i I, yeah i mean and that's i mean that's why i think this book is so powerful because it really just it combines you know ethics and science and and even race we didn't even touch on that piece of it but there's a whole section in the book on the treatment of black and African-American people in history. And, um, and we didn't mention that, but if you aren't aware of this book, you know, Henrietta Blacks was black in the fifties and could only be treated at the colored hospital. And there's a whole layer of reasons why, you know, she was kind of taken advantage of um, because of her color and her ethnicity. Yeah. So a couple of the other things. So I I always, I think he likes it pronounced Zachariah. Is that right? Or is it Zachariah? I always said Zachariah. So, um, but his experience in seeing his mother's cells, it just broke my heart and it gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Um, he's kind of a rough character. And I Super think, rough. And I think there was just this moment when this kind scientist showed him and his sister, Deborah, his mother's cells. And I think for him, it was a life-changing event. And it just, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. <laughs> um, I thought she had that whole section on the other meanings of the word Gila. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting yeah. and cool. And then for me, you know, that really all Deborah wanted was for people to know what her mother's contribution to the world was yeah. and to know who she really was, yeah. her real name. Yeah. And then the thing that also made me sad, she talked about how she envisioned that her mom was experiencing the symptoms of each disease that they tested on her cells. Mm, Do you remember that? Yeah. I was just like, oh, man. Yeah. That's rough. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, I guess all, it's all, all the empathy things, all the things with her kids. And so another, her other brother, Lawrence, says, can you tell me what my mama's cells really did? He whispered, I know they did something, but nobody tells us nothing. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really just summed up the whole book in one sentence. Yeah. I was just like, oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think... Um, it was a powerful book. It was extremely powerful. And it brings up, I think, things that we can discuss based on today's view of what's going on today as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I. it's one of those that I definitely would encourage everyone to read at some point in their lives because it just, yep, it sticks with you. And it's relative to all, it's relative, so that's what I'm looking for. Um, yeah. to all of our lives yeah we, we're all impacted by science and the ethics of science and and hopefully and i think it is kind of funny really these two books had some interesting connections that i don't think we really thought about till we sat down today yeah um but yeah. that that made me feel good about it too and then i have a quick quote that i think is it touches a little bit more um on the racial issue which is black scientists and technicians many of them women which you know in the 1950s women weren't mm-hmm. really allowed to do much of anything Use cells from a black woman to help save the lives of millions of Americans, most of them white. And they did so on the same campus. And at the very same time, the state officials were conducting the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study. Mm -hmm. Tuskegee. Tuskegee syphilis Mm -hmm. study. And, 
you know, it kind of put in perspective, like the reason why we don't have polio anymore mm-hmm. is because of Henrietta Lacks. Yep. The reason why we have all of these advanced science discoveries is because of her. Like, can you imagine if they did not take her tissue? Mm-hmm. Like we would be, it'd just be a mess. We'd probably still be getting, <laughs> not getting polio. <laughs> or we, yeah, or it might've just taken longer. Yeah. So yeah, again, I just, when I, she's definitely a hero. Yeah. I think she's an unsung, unsung hero. So I'm glad that we got to talk about her on this podcast. Yeah. It was a great, it was a great read. Yep. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Well, that's all we have on creative nonfiction. So do you want to talk about what we're going to do next week? So next week, we're going to be talking about bestsellers. And uh, that'll be a change, a nice change of pace. <laughs> For a completely different topic. <laughs> we, we picked all of our genres randomly. So it's good. there's not really going to be any sort of clear cut reason as to why we're reading what we're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so Corey, what did you end up picking for next week? So I picked Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler. Um, the synopsis says newly arrived in New York City, 22 year old Tess lands a job working front of the house of at a celebrated downtown restaurant. What follows is her education in champagne and cocaine, love and lust, dive bars and fine dining rooms as she learns to navigate the chaotic, enchanting, punishing life she has chosen. It's the story of a young girl's coming of age set against the glitzy, grimy backdrop of New York's most elite restaurants. Oh, man, that sounds kind of good. Yeah. So my pick for next week is The Lilac Girls by Martha Hall Kelly. And this is based on the real life story of a New York socialite who championed a group of concentration camp survivors known as the Rabbits. This acclaimed debut novel reveals the story of love, redemption, and terrible secrets that were hidden for decades. And that's just the first paragraph of the back of the book. And that's all I'm going to give you because you have to stay tuned for to next week to know more about it. All right. Until next time. Hey, book friends. We hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for listening along with us. Head over to our podcast site to share your recommendations and your opinions with us on the books we have read. That website is booksandteapodcast.com. It's also where you will find our podcast show notes with a full list of titles for the books, along with our favorite tea and what we mentioned today. If you are on any social media, feel free to stop by our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter accounts. You will find those links on our website. To be the first to hear about the next new podcast and what we are working on, make sure you are signed up to our newsletter.